This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, using our dial-up modem, I am told we are now live on the internet. I'm Dave Rubin, this is The Rubin Report, and we've got another Friday roundtable extravaganza for you. And this is a Rubin Report first, because joining me today is host of The Andrew Clavin Show, and author of A Strange Habit of Mind, Andrew Clavin, and host of The Young Heretics Show, and author of How to Save the West, Spencer Clavin. And yes, you may have noticed they both have the same name because they are a father-son duo. It is the Clavin clan on the Rubin Report. Welcome, guys. It's great. We here. have to stop meeting like this, Dad. I feel like I <laughs> <laughs> barely see you. Except you should find a, a more classy place to get together. I know. Absolutely. Well, this will you happen. really should. I just had a feeling maybe you guys, you're very busy, successful careers. Maybe you just hadn't connected in a while, and I wanted to bring you together here <laughs> on the Rubin Report, mostly to talk about trans issues and other crazy things happening in the world. But before we do anything, because you are a father-son duo. Andrew, you have written what, like 87 books? And Spencer, 80, you're, you've yeah, only 80. written one. Uh, that must be tough as a father's <laughs> two, son. Two, two, I have two books. <laughs> oh, two, sorry, two, so, two, two, I do, the, I do know that. You have written two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it's, it's, it's very disappointing. I resisted being a writer for the longest time because it's sort of like if you're Stephen King's son, you probably shouldn't go into mystery writing. But uh, eventually there was just like nothing I could do. So now dad gets to say that he always has one up on me, which is probably. <laughs> Andrew, how many? How many at this point? It's, it's over 30. I believe it's something like 33. But you'll, you may notice a slight difference between the two of us. Uh, I will do this show and then probably pass away, whereas Spencer <laughs> has many years in which to, to catch up with my numbers. So I, I think he's doing all right. Yeah, I right. do have a head start relative to time, I guess. Exactly. Hair. exactly. The hair. Yeah, the, the hair is good. Fair enough, yes. You're not, you're not taking in those rays that, you know, the thoughts come right into my head without oh, interruption. Speaking of those rays, real quick before we get into the meat of the show, and we're going to recap all the kind of craziness of the week from the woke stuff to Ukraine and some Trump DeSantis stuff and a bunch more. Uh, Andrew, you mentioned that you're actually on vacation in California yeah. right now, which sounds completely psychotic. You live in Virginia. Um, <laughs> Spencer, you're obviously uh, in Nashville with the Daily Wire guys. But Andrew, real quick, uh, because you've been in the biz for a long time, we, we mentioned yeah. right before we started that there's this writer's strike right now, which now the actors are getting in on. I thought maybe you could just give us a little like minute synopsis on what you think's going on there, and then we'll jump yeah, into everything else. Well, the, the actors joining the writers is a big deal because it will shut down production. It'll even shut down promotion of big movies coming out. The issues are really not that complicated. The streaming revolution has changed the business, and everybody, you know, some people want the business to go back the way it was, but there's 
some serious issues like residuals. You used to be on TV. If you had a hit show, you collected money every time the show was played. Now with streaming, they just put it up there and you get the money up front, but you never get any of the success money. You don't succeed when the show succeeds. So there, and, and AI is the other thing because so many TV shows are so by rote that AI could eat, write them easily. The thing is, we're not going back to the past. I mean, AI is here. It's going to do what it does. Actors should have a right to their images. You shouldn't be able to use their images without permission. Uh, and streaming is here to stay, and you've just got to figure out a way to get paid. But what's not coming back is the day of the you know 20 writer-writer rooms uh, that lasted for 26 weeks. Those shows are just gone, and you can't bring them back. And as that, you know, and the people that they're fighting against, the people, the, these unions can be a little too lefty, a little bit too uh, happy to take to the streets on the one hand, but the people that they're up against are people who would literally rip the back of your spine out for a nickel. And so, and so it is going to be an interesting, uh, interesting thing to see who caves in first, because eventually they'll want to bring the business back online. Spencer, I'll give you I'll give you one swing on that. Do you think as the youngest of the panel here, I'm kind of right in between you guys. uh, Do you think like the average younger person even cares if Hollywood collapsed because they're getting their entertainment in a million other places at this point? I'm not even sure if the studios care that the writers are are on strike. They have to, you know, find out through Twitter. But no, I mean, I, um, I I wonder about this. My general AI take Uh, in terms of writing, is that because what these machines do is they churn up all the text on the internet and they basically spit out an approximation of the average of it, um, they're going to replace the the mids. They're going to replace the mid-level writers who, as Dad said, are already churning stuff out that could have been written by a machine, and now it will be. And so uh, there's some degree of hope for me in this, in that, you know, God forbid that a Hollywood writer might actually have to come up with an original idea, something that's not just like, you know, Hollywood uh, <laughs> X-Men 5, The Awakening or, or whatever. Um, but I, yeah, it's also possible that I'm already kind of out of date in that I watch movies at all, that I still go to the theater. I actually saw Indiana Jones 12 for my wow. sins. And I know, I know. Um, and definitely, you know, that's a great example of something that you could probably get chat GPT to churn out uh, in about five minutes. A lot of the new media is obviously much more exciting stuff that people are doing on Rumble, on TikTok, on Locals, whatever. Um, so it's it's possible that the age of cinema is just kind of passing away to begin with. It, it, For the it, record. It's worth, it's worth noticing. You, you should actually just notice this, this thing that just happened with Sound of Freedom. Because conservatives tend to be very stupid about culture, they don't realize what a huge deal this is. This yeah. is a non-Hollywood distributed distribution is the hardest thing. That's where the that's where the big guys take over. And they didn't distribute it through Hollywood. They distributed it through Angel Studios, which does The Chosen. They humiliated Indiana Jones by having two thousand fewer um, theaters, and yet doing better business for a day and better business theater by theater altogether. This is a Christian picture. The left hates it. It's against child molesting. So the left doesn't understand it. What, you know, what's wrong with child molesting, they think. And yet it was a huge success, uh, completely independently done. This is a, this is the, a big threat to the business coming down the pike. And it's all to the good for those of us on the right.
Yeah, you know, there's so much prestige lag that as conservatives, we sit here and we shake our fists and we say, oh, the, uh, you know, the Ivy Leagues and the Hollywood institutions and all the major culture centers, they've been totally captured. They just produce garbage and it's politically motivated. And we still send our kids to Ivy League schools because we want the fancy credential. We want the, you know, the, the note on the degree that's going to make us look special in the eyes of the people that hate us. And gradually with movies like this that you're talking about that I think we start to catch up slowly realize that you can actually make stuff now in these totally new ways it's kind of renegade ways and um, that will replace some of those old supposedly prestigious institutions by the way i should mention uh spencer you said x-men 5 i actually am working on a reboot of the x-men but it's ex dash men x-men and they're all trans dylan mulvaney as professor x Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But speaking of Hollywood, (laughs) speaking of Hollywood, let's get to the first segment. Uh, Actor Brian Cox. Did you guys watch Secession by any chance? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, you both did. I'm actually like... Wait, don't don't say the ending because I am in in season four, episode seven. I watched it last night. I don't know how it ends. Don't say anything about that. Okay. Okay. Actor Brian Cox, who of course plays Logan Roy in the show. uh, He was on with Piers Morgan a couple days ago talking about social media and wokeness and its overall effect on society. Take a look. Are things worse now, or is our perception of life worse because of things like social media inflaming everything? Well, I, think, I don't think social media helps. Mm. Uh, it, 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 it hinders rather than helps. And I think it points up too readily inadequacies mm. that we can actually, and, and the whole woke, well, we've talked mm. about this before, mm. the whole woke culture, I think, is truly awful. And the shaming culture. And the shaming culture. Which I really oh. feel quite strongly no, about. No, that it's is, this incessant need to shame yeah. and bury people. And I, I don't know where it comes from. I don't know who's, who are the arbiters of these, this shaming. Right. And it's very hard to pin them down. And mm. it turns out it's usually a bunch of millennials. You know? Right. And who, and who gave them the halos? I don't know. I mean, it's extraordinary. Well, I mean, I, I suppose in a way they're probably saying, well, you've all screwed it up, so we may as well right. do something about it. Mm. But it's, it's from the wrong principle. It's the wrong, comes from the wrong mm. place. My audience knows I'm not a fan of just randomly throwing to actors to get their opinions on things, because usually their opinions are wrong. But what I thought was interesting about this is he's, he's old school in a certain sense, but he, he's a liberal. He is a Hollywood liberal by his own estimation. Uh, but Andrew, hearing some people in Hollywood finally coming around on this thing maybe means that the worm is turning, right? Oh, yeah. It's been devastating. I mean, I'm out here now. I'm talking to friends. We're in the business. And it's just been devastating to the collegiality of the business, of the sense of fun that the business requires. It's, it is a fun business. It's, you're out here telling stories, uh, making stuff up, and having you know people jump off cliffs and all that stuff. And if you're not having a good time, the audience is not going to have a good time. And if you notice, a really w- good way to notice what's happening is watching what is highlighted on Netflix for a s- several months after the George Floyd riots and the following racial panic that struck, it, it seems like the entire West, you would see like this Black Lives Matter collection on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And I would think like Black Lives Matter is a Maoist con group of con men. I'm not watching a Black Lives Matter collection. And then I would notice that some of my favorite actors were in this stuff. It was, you know, uh, Denzel Washington was there, one of my favorites. And I thought, I'm not going to press on that button. I'm not going to bring up a Denzel Washington film, much as I love him, if it's under a Black Lives Matter rubric, because I want to send a message to Netflix. So slowly, that stuff has disappeared. Slowly, kind of 
mainstream, non-niche material like extraction, you know, heroes going out mm-hmm. and saving the day, is coming back. It doesn't work. It has destroyed. I mean, so much of what's happening in the industry is brought on by technology, but so much is also brought on by this stupid woke philosophy, this idea that everything is wrong about the West, which is really, let's face it, the engine has been the engine of freedom for thousands of years, the most creative, the most artistic, the deepest culture that the world has ever seen. And, you know, are we flawed? Ha, you know, we're filled with people. Of course, we're flawed. But the idea that we shouldn't be celebrating who we are, what we do, the idea that we should constantly be slapping ourselves in the head for things that happened hundreds of years ago is just absurd and it's ugly and it's pessimistic and it's dark and people don't want to go to the theater to and, see it. So, so they can watch more entertaining things on TikTok. And by the way, it's not that it's just destroying the creative part of Hollywood, which is very obvious. Look what it's done to everything. Uh, Star Wars, for example, would be yeah. a good one. Who Bob Iger basically put out a video yesterday in an interview saying, oh, like we're kind of scaling back on it. Like he's admitting they destroyed it now. Uh, but you guys will find this interesting. The guy, the, the, the lighting guy who did two of my studios when I lived in Los Angeles was a multiple time Emmy award winning lighting guy throughout the, the business. He had been in the business for about 40 years, about 65 years old. Uh, he was a liberal his entire life, and, and we would talk about politics sometimes, and he'd be like, Dave, you're kind of crazy. And then, during COVID, he was basically told he is a white guy of a certain age, and he should retire. That's what the studio told him. And then I handed him my book, my first book, and he read it, and he said, Dave, now I get it. And he's basically hanging on to a career that, that almost doesn't exist anymore, not having anything to do with his skills, because those are pretty awesome, but having everything to do with his skin color. Uh, Spencer, Hollywood crumbling. You're in Nashville. You guys are building a lot of things over there. Pretty good. Right. Well, you know, you walk into the Daily Wire offices and every third person that you meet is a refugee from ESPN, Disney. I mean, ABC, these these enormous media corporations that are bleeding top talent because of this idiot philosophy that white people don't get to speak or eat anymore, essentially. You know, it is a genuine self-own that the universities have done as to themselves as well. Harvard, Yale, Princeton are now effectually effectively credentializing institutions for woke theology. They don't offer you an education. They offer you the imprimatur of a really sick philosophy. And that's kind of what Hollywood's doing to itself as well. I love watching Brian Cox play the real life Logan Roy in that interview. I mean, this is one of a number of guys. Uh, Logan Roy is one of them, but the guy from Parks and Recreation, the Nick Offerman character, the Alec Baldwin character in 30 Rock, the left thinks these people are the bad guys, and they present them as these sort of mean, nasty, antagonist men that say nasty things, but they don't understand that the reason audiences love that show is because of those guys Mm -hmm. who say these uncomfortable things that are now forbidden by this weird speech code that they've all imposed upon themselves. And as Dad is saying, you know, you watch the way that this has just strangled people in the business. By the way, not just white people. I can't imagine it's all that much fun to be Denzel Washington, you know, and and one of the great actors of your generation and to have your whole opus, your whole life's work reduced to this kind of tokenism. Black lives matter. Great. That's what we're going to say about the man who just delivered one of the best performances of Macbeth in living memory. It's mm-hmm. it's appalling. And I'm, I imagine that nobody likes it. So I love, you know, that, that Brian Cox is saying it. I, I hope that 
you know, it keeps, uh, I hope it keeps going, but s- sort of selfishly, I kind of want all of these people, you know, keep doing it, keep alienating <laughs> yeah. all of these great people, like come yeah. bring them over well, to Daily Wire, why not? Fear not, they are not going to stop because some <laughs> images leaked this morning. I, I honestly thought this was made up. It's so insane. I really thought it was made up, but uh, truth is far stranger than fiction these days. Uh, this is from the N Wokeness Twitter account. Uh, that what you are seeing right there, so of course the original Seven Dwarfs, 1937. Can we zoom in on the original Seven Dwarfs? Okay, so that's the Seven Dwarfs that we all know and love. You got your Sleepy, your Doc, your Dopey, <laughs> the rest of them, the usual set of characters. They are now remaking this into a live action movie and this is real, ladies and gentlemen. Look at this. These are <laughs> the new Seven Dwarfs. You may note that there's only one dwarf there. That's one thing. And then it's just a diverse uh, or whatever set of characters. My favorite though is Rapey. Look at Rapey over here. Look at that <laughs> one. That is definitely Rapey. Uh, Andrew, Andrew, again, you've been in the business your whole life. They are wrecking, they're wrecking the dreams of the past, what we all know and love. And then they put this, and it's like, they're falling on their sword. Disney knows this is going to be mocked. It is going to lose money. But the activists at the company simply don't care. And Iger still, I guess, despite being better than the previous, Chapik, he still is doing it. Iger made an amazing statement yesterday where he said that they're basically their TV and streaming arms are not going to be core to their company's profits. Yeah, yeah. I thought you got, yeah, guess what? Well, also on the, that, and then on the front page of the Wall Street Journal uh, last week is a story saying that Disney parks are emptying out. And Iger is saying, oh, it's absolutely absurd that we're trying to sexualize your kid when Chris Rufo has released videotapes yep. of their Skype section, sessions, yep. or Zoom sessions, where they're saying, yeah, we're going to sexualize your kids. Uh, yeah, these guys, they do not know. They're so surrounded by people like themselves. They do not know we hate them. And we do, they do not know that when we sit around and say, you know, men can't become women. You know, you know listen, live any way you please, but men can't become women. They don't understand that 99% of the country agrees with us. And the people who don't agree with us are lying. You know, they agree with us too. And so they don't realize that until, I mean, the big one is this Bud Light thing with Dylan Mulvaney. Yeah. One can of beer and they've fallen off the top. The the number one beer in America has fallen out of the top 10 and is still losing money just because people are offended by being forced to lie, by having the FBI take their tweets off, by being uh, hounded for speaking the simple truth that we all know. This is this is gutted the the Hollywood industry and Spencer is absolutely right. You know, you walk into the daily wire and people are creating things. They're saying things they're, they're not afraid. We're constantly being taken off YouTube for speaking simple truths. I mean, things that everybody knows, how long do they think they can go in this country, this diverse, crazy, free country? How long do they think they can go silencing the truth before it just rises up like a gigantic dragon and bites them on the ass? And that is the moment. That moment is coming now. I mean, it's happening now. And only because conservatives don't really understand the culture that well. Do they Spencer, not Spencer, see Spencer, I just had a great idea. I don't know if Daily Wire has the cash to get the rights to Seven Dwarfs, but I mean, Shapiro could easily play a dwarf. Come on, come on. Can they do what they did on Lord of the Rings where they make us all short? Because that would really, that would really rock. You know, here's the really fascinating thing to me about that Iger 
statement is, you know, he tried to pass it off as, oh, we made too much of this. You know, we put out too many different spinoffs, too flooded the zone with too much Star Wars content. Uh, let me tell you something. I know Star Wars fans. I'm I'm married to one. I'm married to a Star Wars fanatic. I understand that fan base. It is not possible yes, to create exactly. too much Star Wars content. Exactly. That is a contradiction in terms. There's no such thing. If he thinks that what the problem is is making too many Qui-Gon Jinn spin-offs, he's out of his mind. And he obviously knows it's not that. He knows that they put a gender studies professor at the helm of a spaceship and said, you know, fly it into the patriarchy, which is obviously <laughs> an enormous catastrophe for the people that watch those movies, it's it's such a self-owned because they have this huge fanatical fan base built in, just as Bud Light has an obvious market. Everybody knows who buys that beer and they cannot help themselves from saying, we hate you, we hate you, we hate you. And finally, conservatives who have absolutely no interest in boycotting anything or doing anything other than sort of sitting quietly at home and raising their families have, have realized that the only thing that's going to make this stop is if you just throw the beer into the Boston Harbor. So <laughs> I think you know, long may it last. I, you know, I tweeted it out this morning and I'm, I'm not kidding. What a beautiful ending to the disastrous Star Wars Disney story would be now that they've wrecked Star Wars and they're also in the tank and Iger admitted that DeSantis beat them, like all of this stuff. Why doesn't George Lucas come in? I checked this morning. He's worth about $4.2 billion. Why doesn't he come in, buy Star Wars back on the cheap and then just fix it? And then I know he doesn't want anything to do with it anymore because the fans have all gone crazy. But like what a beautiful ending that would be. But let's let's shift to something else uh, also related somewhat to Hollywood, but I thought it had kind of bigger uh, cultural ramifications. This Jonah Hill story, we covered this yesterday. I'm just going to read a bit from the Daily Wire. Uh, Jonah Hill's surfer ex-girlfriend, Sarah Brady, released a number of text messages she said were attempts to control her behavior. Hill explained what he expected of her with regard to the way she presented herself if they were going to be dating seriously. One of the texts read, plain and simple, if you need surfing with men, boundaryless, inappropriate relationships with men, to model, to post pictures of yourself in a bathing suit, to post sexual pictures, friendships with women who are in unstable places uh, and from your wild recent past beyond getting a lunch or coffee or something respectful. I am not the right partner for you. If these things bring you to a place of happiness, I support it and there will be no hard feelings. These are my boundaries for a romantic partnership, my boundaries which uh, with you based on the way these actions have hurt our trust. Uh, Spencer, let me start with you on this one. Uh, when I read this yesterday, I was like, man, not only is everything he said there completely within bounds, mm -hmm. even if someone was arguing that to some degree, okay, he doesn't want her to model. Maybe that's like, for somebody, maybe that's a bit much. He was being clear and honest about what he wants. And it seems to me that that is what young people need more than anything these days. No one is setting boundaries. No one's saying what they want and understanding what they believe to even say it in the first place. I, I thought it was beautiful. And of course, the media is now calling him a misogynist and, and the rest of it. Right. I mean, this was a real mask off moment because he's doing everything that men are constantly being told to do. He's being forthright and clear about his hopes for the relationship. He's doing so in a respectful way. He's using language pulled right out of a therapy session. I mean, these are my boundaries. He's effectively attempting to just reach out to this 
woman in and, and, and say in the plainest terms possible, I want a committed relationship with you. I don't want to be competing between myself and the Internet, essentially, for your affections, for your love, all of these things. I'm sure that that came along with, you know, a, a corresponding commitment on on his end. And she spits this in his face as like a form of abuse. The Me Too movement has now cratered in on itself from a sort of understandable creed occur against rampant abuses in Hollywood into like somebody sent a man sent me a text. Basically, what all of these complaints now amount to is somebody hit on me and I wasn't into it because the real secret behind all of this is if you are if you have chemistry with somebody and if you're flirting and you're getting along and you're figuring out a healthy way to build a relationship together, none of this stuff is even remotely toxic, counts even slightly as abuse. The message that this sends to me that this sent, I think, to a lot of young men is that there is nothing you can do. Being right. a man is the crime. And therefore, if you attempt anything at any moment, even if you don't say anything at all, if you just sit there, ultimately you are liable for some kind of exposure, uh, for, for shaming, for a, for a public abuse. And this is a completely untenable, unsustainable situation. Men and women of goodwill all know it. The sexual ethic of this neo-feminist movement is totally played out, totally kaput. Something better has to replace it. And what's interesting to me is that something better quietly and secretly is replacing it. If you talk to young people, especially young women, they know that this stuff is junk. It has destroyed their lives. It has set men and women against each other when they should be a delight unto one another. Um, and much like the situation in Hollywood, it simply can't last. Reality, certain facts about reality just come back around. And one of them is that men and women aren't in, in a war. They're not fundamentally at odds with one another. Manhood is not a crime. And I, I think the Jonah Hill thing was really revealing to people, not necessarily on the right, who just said, look, what does this guy have to do? He's doing everything he's supposed to, uh, being totally clear and, and forthright, and he's still getting burned for it. Something's got to give. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Andrew, as the elder statesman of the group, I'm going to go old school reference on you. All in the family, late 70s, early 80s, or maybe it was mid 70s to late 70s. Uh, girls were girls and men were men. That's all he's saying. He's just saying, I, I'm telling you how I feel. You want to do this, yes or no? And that's just too much for these people. Uh, well, absolutely. The, there's just a big difference between the, how the media is playing this, the kind of feminist media uh, conglomerate is playing it, and the way actual people are reacting to it. There is, right this minute, a, a fascinating and I think urgent movement rising up that is not getting enough attention. I'm covering it on my show. I don't see anybody else covering it. And that is a movement of highly intelligent, intellectual women, mostly toward the left, who are suddenly realizing this has not worked. Feminism mm -hmm. has not worked. And birth control has not worked. Birth control, as one of these, the brightest of these women, Mary Harrington, points out, has turned women into sterile cyborgs who no longer have any reason to refuse sex, while at the same time we are evolved to feel that women's sexual apparatus, which produces human beings when you have sex with them, 
it should be protected and they should be have the kind of uh, virtue that it takes to protect the ongoing generations. All of that has failed them. It has put them in this position where they're just being used. You know, there was a hilarious, absolutely hilarious declaration that we should now refer to the vagina as the bonus hole. And I thought, well, well, which is which is the bonus? Is the bonus that it feels good or the bonus that it produces the baby? Which which one comes first, you know? And I think that they don't know. They just think that's what they think. This is a bonus hole. The woman who won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. Uh, I can't even remember whether he or is a she or one of the or both. It's a guy. Uh, at this point. It's a guy. A dude. guy. Yeah. Yeah. And and said he he said something like the you know the the asshole is like the universal vagina. And I thought, well, yeah, I think so. If women are now sterile cyborgs, that is true. When you dissociate yourself from the actual human body, you have dissociated yourself from humanity itself, and this just cannot stand. It can't continue. We definitely got our out-of-context clip of the day. It's Andrew saying the asshole is the universal vagina. Let's <laughs> click that and send that out to the internet. Uh, uh, I, I say that all the time in my <laughs> Speaking of assholes, let's go over to Europe because there was a big NATO summit and uh, Zelensky, this guy from Ukraine, he just wants more cash and he wants in on NATO so he can walk us to World War III. That's at least my humble opinion. Uh, here's a little clip of him telling us what he wants, because he just wants more. Uh, bear with us on the audio on this one. We had to bump it up so it's a little crackly, but you'll get it. I think for today, three priority questions. The first one is uh, weapon packages, new weapon packages for supporting our army on the battlefield. And that is one. The second, I think the invitation to NATO. And uh, um, we want to be on the same page with everybody, with all, all the understanding. And for today, what we what we what we hear and understand that we'll have this invitation when security measures will allow. To be clear, because it was a little muddled, he wants money, he wants troops, he wants in on NATO. Spencer, I'm a simple guy. I don't really want him to have any more of my money, and I don't really want to send our troops. And I also know that if he, if Ukraine gets into NATO, literally it triggers World War III within two seconds. <laughs> you don't want that? You don't want uh, nuclear holocaust, Dave? You're no fun. Come on. I'm living in Florida. Everything's great at the moment. It's like, not, you know, if I was still in Cali, maybe. Then, right, bring it on, sweet meteor of death. No, I mean, look, from the beginning of this whole thing, I have said, I don't blame Zelensky for shooting his shot. I blame us for being yes. so feckless, misdirected and weak that we have no clue what to do except shovel cash at this problem and virtue signal about it. The lack, the total lack of serious statesmen in Washington is what this really reveals. And look, Zelensky is a, an actual world leader in an actual country having actual problems. Our president and every Democrat surrounding him and many indeed of our Republicans as well are fantasy LARPers living in Bizarro. Come on. Who think that you can just print paper money, imagine dollars into existence and that really nothing ever happens because it's the end of history. So it's all just kind of a big video game where we hang the Ukrainian flag out our, our window. When I go to visit my 
dad and mom in Alexandria, there are more Ukrainian flags hanging mm-hmm. outside the door than there are American flags. And they're often on top of the American flag, which I think is like a minor act of treason. So the, <laughs> to, to me, it's not that Zelensky is some kind of evil villainous scheming actor. It's that there is an enormous void of seriousness, direction, competency, and assertiveness at the heart of American politics right now. And Zelensky is not the only person who is going to step into that void. Xi Jinping wants to step into that void. Vladimir Putin wants to step into that void. The problem is us. We Once we fix ourselves and get our house in order, uh, a lot of this other stuff will fall into place. But we have serious work to do before we get there. Andrew, Andrew, on the NATO side of this thing, I mean, basically, the deal with NATO is that if a NATO member country is attacked, that NATO has to respond. Now, that, now in essence, we all know that really means the United States has to respond. It's not like some random Nordic country is going to attack Russia, right? So we know it's on us. But the fact that he's trying to drive us there, and actually, I can't believe I'm going to say this, to slight, slight, slight credit of the Biden administration, we're not doing it yet, right? NATO hasn't accepted them yet. So I'll, I guess I'll give like the, tiny, the tiniest bit of credit there. Um, he wants to trigger World War III. It, it seems fairly obvious to me. It's not as if they get in and the next day Russia's like, okay, we're done. So he knows what he's asking for. Yeah, I, I, I don't think he wants, I think I agree with Spencer on this. I think he wants to play his hand. He wants to get everything he can get. And why shouldn't he? He represents Ukraine. So he's fighting through, for Ukraine. We represent America. So we're fighting for, I have no idea what, you know, we <laughs> actually don't know who we are. Right. And right. so the, the, the one thing I will go on the, I uh, will go on the other direction here is that I do believe that there is some value in making Vladimir Putin look bad. The other day I heard Tucker Carlson talking to Andrew Tate and they say there are no good guys or bad guys in war. And that's only a half truth. There are yes, no good guys I, anywhere, but there are bad guys in the war. And Vlad mm-hmm. Putin is, is a genuine gangster, you know, scum. And he is <clears throat> making alliance with Xi and China and to make him humiliate him a little bit, make him, you know, put him on his back feet. What we don't have is we don't have a plan. Uh, you know, somebody ought to, you know, wake up Joe Biden and give him some of the cocaine his son left behind <laughs> to spruce him up for a minute and say, what's the plan, Joe? You know, I don't, I don't know where I am, but I, you know, I think that we don't know what, what we're fighting for. And I'm, I'm not against giving Putin problems if we don't have to send our own people there. And I'm, I'm willing to spend a little money on that. I think it's worthwhile. He invaded another country, but I, I just don't know where we're going with it. I don't know where, where we can say we won and where we say the war is over. That, you're right, could lead us to, into World War III. By the way, I'm glad you mentioned that Tucker Tate interview because we played that clip and I, I made basically the same comment. Like, it's not just as easy to say there are no good guys and no bad guys. If someone's relentlessly attacking your home and your family and you defend yourself, you actually are the good guy. <laughs> In that case, but let me just throw one quick video on Zelensky because guys, don't worry, we're giving him an awful lot, but at least he's very thankful for it. And you gave us huge support. I want to thank to all Americans who understand that it's more than 43 billion for today. It's big support. And I understand that it's all your money, but but you have to know that you spend this money for for not, not just fighting. You spend this money for our lives, and uh, I think that we save the, the lives for, for, for Europe and for, for all the world. Spencer, bring us home quickly on this one. It's, he thanks us. It's all our money, and he's very thankful. Uh, you're going to be on this earth past the time that your dad and I are gone. Uh, it's going to be extra your money, by the way. 
<laughs> yeah, apparently. Heaven forfend. Now, I think once both of you shuffle off this mortal coral, God will be about ready to bring the curtain down. So I don't have to worry too much. The whole thing, the stars will fall from heaven. Uh, no, I, look, the U.S. is not a charitable trust. I will go that far in the direction of realpolitik. I think it's absolutely true that unless you make moral judgments about regimes and leaders, you can't think seriously about the whole picture in war. So as you guys were both saying, it's not just so easy as to say, well, you do what you have to do and everything is relative to the situation that you're in. There are good guys, or at least there are less bad guys uh, when you're thinking about, you know, who your allies are and what kinds of uh, civilizations you want to defend. Part of our problem is that we have no idea what our civilization is, as dad was indicating. Uh, we basically, our major cultural export is like hormone blockers for small children, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, uh, extremely bleak, but accurate. Depict I mean, uh, Al-Qaeda is painting over murals of George Floyd in Afghanistan as we speak, you know, now that we're, now that we're out, but <laughs> we don't exist. It's like, it's very nice that Zelensky is so, so kind to us to thank us for literally Literally all of our money. Um, but in reality, in real world politics, as we should be playing this, the money that we give to other countries is to support our interests abroad. And insofar as supporting Ukraine does further those interests, I think there's a case to be made that there's some money to be spent there. Um, but I'm, I'm actually not interested in improving the quality of life of other people simply for, for the mere sake of it. it, it there is something about this uh, discourse in America and overseas that sort of treats us like the World Bank that you just sort of dip in whenever you need something. Um, and that is a step too far. Speaking of something about the discourse, let's jump to the, to the last uh, segment I wanted to cover, which is I've tried to dip a little bit out of the racehorse politics stuff for the last couple of weeks, especially the DeSantis-Trump stuff, because people don't realize we are still over six months away from the first primary. We have a debate next month, but the first vote will not even be cast in Iowa until January of next year. And everyone's fighting and going crazy. So I've been trying to take my pedal, my foot off the pedal just a little bit, but I thought we'd dive in just to, to end today's show because I know you guys, uh, we're all sort of roughly on the same side of this thing, uh, maybe with some differences. I thought it'd be interesting. Here's more from that Daily Wire place. Uh, former President Donald Trump retained a large lead in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Florida following a boost in the polls after his indictments, according to the latest Real Clear Politics polling average. Trump's national polling sits at 52.6%, according to the RCP average. DeSantis is in second place with 21%. Former VP Mike Pence holds third at 6.3. And Haley and Scott come in fourth and fifth with 3.5 and 3.3, respectively. DeSantis's polling average has leveled off around 20% nationally after jumping into the race in late May. The governor had reached as high as 30% in some polls earlier this year before he officially launched his campaign. Trump's large lead in the polls comes as he has dominated headlines for months following his April indictment in Manhattan on 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. Two months later, the former president was indicted in Miami on 37 felony counts relating to his handling of classified documents. Many Republicans, including some of Trump's opponents in the GOP primary, have defended the leading candidate amidst his legal battles, calling the indictments politically motivated targeting of President Biden, Joe Biden's chief rival. Uh, first, let me just ask you guys kind of philosophically, Andrew, you first. Um, 
t taking my foot off the pedal on this thing and just kind of letting it play out. People know my personal feelings about this. I, I voted for Trump. I like Trump. Obviously, I think DeSantis is, is a better choice at this point. Do you think we could all take a breath? Do you think that would, uh, anyone that's roughly on the right at this point or might vote for one of these guys, do you think everyone just kind of taking a breath might be good instead of all the infighting? Of course, you're absolutely right about the time here that this point in when Hillary Clinton was running against Barack Obama, she had the, basically the same numbers that Trump has now. Trump is a amazing character. He is a great showman. He is great at what he's doing. The Democrats are playing our passions as if we were a, a, a church organ. Mm -hmm. They really have figured out that rage will will help them, and rage makes us stupid. Rage always makes you stupid. So you indict him unfairly. He was indicted abs absurdly in New York. He was indicted unfairly in the at the federal level because Hillary Clinton did almost exactly the same thing he did and walked away scot-free. It's yep. infuriating. It makes people want to support him. He knows what he's doing. But if you listen to what he's saying, his message is gone. His original uh, attachment to the common sense solutions that made him actually a good president for three of his four years uh, is, is kind of lost. He just was is saying whatever he thinks people want to hear. DeSantis has a better record. DeSantis is blowing this. He is doing a bad job. So even though it's far out, he has got to change his game. His people do not know what they're doing. They don't have any sense of social media. They don't have any, they don't have any sense of mo the modern media whatsoever. He walks around talking about Florida, like Allison Hannigan talking about band camp in American Pie. You know, I mean, he just keeps bringing it up. You know, that's not what California cares about. It's not what Iowa cares about. That said, he's got a couple of good things. His, his pack has a good ground game in Iowa. They're ringing on, you know, they're knocking on doors. That always helps. But until they let this guy get out with the people and humanize him a little bit and let, let them see that he is somebody with a plan, he doesn't have to be a Trump showman. The biggest thing he needs and the problem no one in politics has solved is how to attack Donald Trump, because that's who he's running against, how to attack Donald Trump without becoming Donald Trump. And yes. that is and that is the thing he's going to have to figure out before this gets in, into the fall and winter. But you are absolutely right, Dave. This is too, too early to decide where this is going to go. It's not too early for DeSantis to start thinking about what he needs to do to become a national candidate. By the way, I, I actually agree with that assessment. And I would love to see Governor DeSantis go on The View and say right to their faces the things that we're all saying about The View and woke culture and all of that stuff. Like, he can do it and he should. Yep. I think he should offer to go on Rogan. He shouldn't, you know, just do my show and, and Daily Wire and things of that nature. So we'll see about that. But actually, let me throw to, to, to your point, Andrew. Uh, Maria Bartiromo had the governor on, uh, I think this is yesterday, and they talked a bit about what's going on with the campaign. Yeah, and you've done a great job pushing back against woke. We know that. But I'm wondering what's going on with your campaign. There was a lot of optimism about you running for president earlier in the year. But here's this weekend's headline from the Politico playbook. Failure to launch Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign <laughs> to topple Donald Trump has stalled. We are way behind, <laughs> says a top DeSantis PAC official, sounding the alarm. What happened? <laughs> oh, Maria, these are narratives. The media does not want me to be the nominee. I think that's very, very clear. Why? Because they know I'll beat Biden. But even more importantly, they know I will actually deliver on all these things. So, Andrew, I, I, I actually, oh, sorry, uh, Spencer, I actually agree with 
DeSantis there. And I think it's almost sort of silly for Bartiromo to quote Politico when we know they're an activist organization, not a journalistic outfit. Uh, but the point is, he should be probably doing that on more combative television, right? Yeah, you know, it gives me no pleasure to say this because I, uh, on balance, would prefer to see DeSantis win the nomination. Um, but there's a likability problem there, and I didn't quite expect it. I think that I, and maybe DeSantis himself, uh, who are laboring under the pleasant delusion that simply being an extremely competent and right-thinking <laughs> politician was enough of an advertisement to the American people and to the Republican Party. Um, it's not, right? And so there is there is this big issue about, you know, how he's presenting himself, how he's getting his message across. Um, in a weird way, my dream scenario, um, which is in some ways the most distant scenario, is for us to have a presidential fight between Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom. Um, and, and not because Gavin has my heart in any respect at all, but just because that would actually represent the fight that we are having yeah. at the national level. A lot of this other stuff is distraction to me. Um, and a key point about drawing back, uh, taking a deep breath is that leaving aside, you know, the moment when we will all have to choose which candidate we vote for in the primaries and then ultimately in the general, um, it is a bad idea for us as conservatives to start slitting one another's throats this early. It's already going to be a bit of a bloodbath, I think, this fight between these two camps. Um, you've seen some really nasty stuff emerging, internecine warfare. Um, and I just don't think it's it's worth it because the truth of the matter is, although this is a very important presidential election, um, what's more important is the energy of the new right. And DeSantis has genuinely been a major figure, a major leader um, in that part of the conservative movement. He will remain that way. I hope sincerely that he bucks up his campaign. Um, it would be a delight to see him run on his record in Florida if what he was saying is, I'm going to turn the whole country into this, essentially. These are going to be my issues. Um, and compare that to the apocalyptic hellscape run by lizard man Gavin Newsom. All of that sounds like a great message to me. Um, but it's sounding stiff and wooden, and it's not really... It, 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 it seems to be relying, uh, alas, on competency and and skill, which is actually, unfortunately, not enough. Yeah, I think we're, we have a little bit of a tortoise hare situation here, and the tortoise does win, so there's time to go. But also keep in mind, it's like Trump announced back in, what was that? That was October of last year. And yeah. even now, we're still, as I said, six months away from the primary. So the, the elongation of this thing has just been absolutely crazy. I just want to hit one other thing on, on the presidential politics side, uh, because Trump's main advisor, is he his campaign manager, Jason Miller? He's the actual senior advisor. Uh, Jason Miller uh, went on TV and he was asked whether Trump is actually going to debate. Uh, and here was his answer. What is going to be the deciding factor on whether President Trump does or does not participate in the debates? Great question. At the moment, President Trump has indicated that he's unlikely to participate, at least in the first two debates. He's up by 30, 40, and even new polling shows he's up by almost 50% in certain places. It really wouldn't make much sense for him to go and debate right now with a bunch of folks who are down at 3, 4, and 5%. Even Ron DeSantis, who's a second place candidate in the race currently, is at least 20, 30, or 40 points behind. And so ultimately, President Trump will make a decision as we get closer. He has not said anything definitive one way or the other. I'm not expecting him to participate, though. All right. The first off, first off, the fact that the spokesman can't even say DeSantis' name, probably. I'm just so sick of that shit. And I think more and more people are. But OK, they're just going to do that. That's fine. 
but Andrew, this idea that you, just because you're so far ahead, now national polls also don't mean anything because you have to win primaries, not national polls, but let's say it's all legit and he is up, up by all those numbers. To me, that does not excuse you not going to debates. If we are ever gonna get out of the lunacy that, that Spencer was just talking about, we have to be able to be debate ideas. And if you're up by a ton, you should be able to debate them confidently. So I think it's gonna be a major hit for him if he dips out of these two debates. What do you think? I think it's going to be a hit. The balance you always have to play is that if you're that far ahead, you have nothing to win in a debate. You can only lose in a debate because he's so far ahead. The other side of that uh, balance is that you look like a wimp and you look like you can't participate, especially afterwards when he comes out and starts calling people names and starts, you know, uh, refuting their points. And everybody says, well, why didn't you show up and mm -hmm. do that to their faces? Why do it behind their back? Trump has still got a bit of Teflon on him. He sinks so low, the name calling and the idea that, you know, people are uh, losers and all this kind of stuff that comes out of his mouth. That to me, people do not understand how off-putting that is to a large swath of voters. It is why he lost. He did not lose because Martians took the machines and changed the votes. He lost because he's a rude, boorish man who treats people badly even when they work for him. And that comes back to bite you. And it came back to bite him. And I think, you know, at some point, at some point, people look at that and turn away. But so far, he's just been golden. And the reason for that is because that's who he plays on TV. So everybody already knows who he is and thinks that's just Trump. But at some point, yeah, you hope uh, people come back to reality instead of reality TV. By the way, Andrew, I, I try to give you credit on this one every time you're on the show. I think it's worth mentioning again that we were together at the Daily Wire uh, studios on the night of the Trump election with Ben and Jeremy and the whole crew. And you said something that really framed those first few years of the presidency for me and, and ultimately got me to be a Trump supporter, I think, in a certain respect, because you said on that night when the thing happened that nobody thought could happen, Trump became president, you said, wow, only in this country can that sort of thing happen. And that's a beautiful thing that we have in America because in most countries, the thing that you don't think can happen can't happen. And that's the problem. Uh, and he Spencer, changed everything. My, yeah, Spencer, my other thought on Trump dipping out is that it's, this is just my opinion, but it seems fairly obvious to me that he has cut a deal with Vivek, that Vivek will be the attack dog on DeSantis. So what he's doing basically is I'll step away and Vivek, you're gonna go all in and do all my dirty work at the debates do you think there's any legitimacy to that? Well, I have no idea whether he's cut a deal or not. But even if he hasn't, um, that is the scenario that he's going to gain by stepping out of the debates. Naturally, if he absents himself uh, and the big dog steps away, uh, the number twos, the pr prospective number twos are all going to try to take up take out the next biggest dog. Um, so I would imagine if you're Trump, that's part of your strategy, right? You want the Chris Christie's and the Vivek's of the world to go for DeSantis. And then once they've taken him out, you want to, Vivek to take out Christie or Christie to take out Vivek or whatever, however it shakes out. Um, you know, I just don't know what we learn from debates anymore. There's maybe, maybe this is like too structural a point, but it seems like the, the the spectacle of people getting up on TV and yelling at each other has been turned by social media into a predetermined conclusion. Like we kind of all know what we think going into them. It's not totally clear to me that we change our minds, except mm -hmm. uh, as as dad says, to sort of like turn off 
uh, undecided voters. So uh, I, I, if I were Trump, I would also like probably think about stepping away from the debate because what do you have to what do you have to gain? And you know you do sort of then throw DeSantis as like a piece of of meat to the rest of the of the pack, which you know it's not that's not unintelligent. Well, fear fear not, guys, because as I said, we have six months until the first primary. So yeah. may God help us all. Uh, gentlemen, before I let you go for the weekend, I'm going to do a post-game show over at rubinreport.locals.com in just a moment. Am I an honorary Clavin after spending this much time with you in a respectful <laughs> manner? I'm sorry, Absolutely you have to go not. The initiation yeah. Uh, yeah, it's extremely <laughs> elaborate, dark. Yes. And, and, few, uh, few survive, actually. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> On that note, it's been a pleasure seeing you guys. We'll link down to we'll link to your stuff down below. And yeah, we're gonna continue post-game, uh, rubinreport.locals.com. Have a great weekend, guys, and we'll see everybody on the other side. Well, thank you very much. You know, uh everybody. Be sure to subscribe and rate this podcast. And don't forget, you can watch my direct messages live on Blaze TV and YouTube every weekday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And of course, if you want to connect with me personally and get early access to my sit-down interviews, join rubinreport.locals.com.